You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. And so I'm going to carry on that series on, we're speaking out uh, gospel culture and, and among gospel culture, we're kind of doing a subset on marriage. And now I want to take all the principles that, that Josh has been teaching us about and, and apply them uh, and see what that looks like in a marriage that is broken and troubled. In particular, I want to think about uh, how God's unchanging principles for, for marriage uh, look, what, what do they look like when there's not much respect being shown in a marriage, which is often the way it is. So let's open our Bibles and look at our section. I'm gonna, we're gonna read a little bit of the context that I won't be covering everything I'll be reading, but we'll be reading, but we'll be covering much of it. First Peter chapter two, I'd like to start reading at verse 13, and I'll read right through to chapter three, verse seven. Follow along with me in your translation. I'll be using the English standard version. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What I wanna do today is divide our time into three sections. Uh, We will follow the flow of scripture for the first two, and then I'd like to depart from the text and 
bring in kind of larger biblical principles for the last section that we'll cover. The three sections will be as follows. The gospel template for handling disrespect. The marriage teaching for handling disrespect. And the wisdom paradigm to guide careful application. So have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2, especially verses 21 to 25. Point number one, the gospel template for handling disrespect. The gospel template for handling disrespect. I was telling Josh before the service that um, every time you prepare to preach, um, a preacher has always got to let, make sure that the, the text speaks through his own heart before he talks to the congregation, and hopefully that happens every time we get up here. But I would say in, in my life, about every two to three years, there's a text that shakes me. And this, this passage has deeply convicted me as I've worked through it over the last three weeks. Uh, uh, to be honest, it's, it's torn me to pieces. It's uh, shattered deep parts of me, as my wife can attest to. And to make sure that I'm, I'm getting the lesson, God has sent extra amounts of disrespect into my life, both from friends and foes, I believe, to test me to see if I'm learning the lesson. So I sincerely hope and I have prayed that this message would help many of you today. But if it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me because it's been earth shattering for me. And my sweet wife has been so patient with me as I've wrestled with this text. How did Jesus respond to mistreatment and disrespect? How did Jesus respond to mistreatment and disrespect? Let's not forget who we're talking about. His divine identity, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who called the worlds into being, uh, who the angels worship, who demons cower before. What the text says is actually mind-blowing. In chapter two, verse 23, it's mind-blowing no matter how you look at it. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Conscious of God, entrusting himself to God, uh, Jesus chooses not to respond or react to disrespect in kind. Disrespect gets disrespect. And verse 22 tells us that he committed no sin and he didn't even respond with deceit. It's an interesting word to use in the context of disrespect. You see, when people feel disrespected, uh, sometimes they, they, they just shout back disrespectful things. We see that on the internet all the time. It's on display for us every day if we're on the internet. But sometimes people don't respond to disrespect with vocal and public disrespect. What they do, rather, is they resort to subtle ways of showing it. And this is covered by this word deceit. Uh, we can sometimes uh, stretch the truth about people and put them in a bad light. Uh, if we don't insult them in public to hurt them, we can act with cunning, uh, deceitful cunning to undermine them in private. And what, the, what this text is telling us is that Jesus didn't sin either publicly or privately in the way he handled disrespect from others. And the amazing thing it says in verse 21, to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. This, this word example in verse 21, uh, it originally meant, it was kind of like tracing the letters that kids do in, in grade one or in kindergarten where they learn how to write and do, do cursive writing. It's, it's, it's the idea of, of closely following the exact model of Jesus. 
Karen Job uh, is one of the best commentators on 1 Peter, and, and uh, she explains the full force of this concept to us. I think this is, a, this is such a great quote. Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. My friends, we've talked about this before, as, as, as compelling as this example is, and it is compelling, uh, we, we all know that an example doesn't convey the power to follow it any more than God's law conveys the power to obey its demands. And so verse 24 and 25 are so critical to understanding what's going on here. Uh, verse 24 really is the epicenter of, of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, by the way, the whole book is, is following the theme of unjust suffering. What do you do when you, when, you, when you suffer? And it's not just suffering like illness or getting old or life is hard. It's when people mistreat you. That's the grand, that's the grand theme of 1 Peter. Uh, what do you do when that happens? And, and now we get to the very epicenter of this, this book that's all about unjust suffering. And we find in verse 24, the, really the bow that propels us toward Christ and inspiring example. When, when, we are, when we are facing disrespect in our lives, remember that we don't just receive disrespect, right? We, we give it. We're not just victims or violators, okay? So let's just, let's just admit that right away. Uh, but, but when we're, we're facing the problem of disrespect, uh, there are two big issues that hold us back in this area. The first is, of course, our sinful response to disrespect, which is often anger or retaliation or, or coldness and withdrawal, okay? But the, but the second is the, the sinful words and actions that have been done against us. Uh, so we sometimes respond in sinful ways, and that's a whole issue that needs to be dealt with, but, but then also we've been injured by sinful things that have been said and done. And the reality is, in order to get free from disrespect, you have to deal both with your sinful response and the sinful things that have been done to you. There's, there's two ways going on here. To deal with the first, to deal with our sin, it tells us, in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's very vivid language that Jesus puts the burden of our sin on himself and, and takes it and, and, and as it were, hoists himself on the cursed tree forever. Cursed is anyone that is hung on a tree, it says in Deuteronomy. He, he takes our sin and, and deals with it decisively on the cross. That's how our sin is dealt with. But secondly, he also removes the shame that comes from, from being insulted and mistreated. You know, shame is an interesting thing. Shame comes from really two, two ways. It, when you do something wrong and you're guilty, uh, you feel shame inwardly, but that shame magnifies if it's made public. When people publicize people's sin, they shame them. That's how shame comes. So you do something wrong and then people know about what you've done wrong, that brings shame. But also people can shame you by what they do to you. And it's interesting, it says here that not only did he die for our sins, but he says, by his wounds you've been healed. By his wounds, you've been healed. His physical wounds on the cross brought spiritual healing for the shame and pain. Uh, he, he somehow takes care of the things that have been done to us as well. This is something, by the way, that's not the main emphasis in scripture when it comes to the cross, but it is there. And this verse tells us he does both. And then amazingly in the middle, it says, 
He died so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. We, it, it, he, the cross gives us the capacity to follow the example of Christ because it deals with our, our, our guilt and our shame. Well, well, how do we get in on this? Well, verse 25 tells us how to do that. We, we return to the shepherd of our souls for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The, the word return there is, is, a, is a, 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 not the common word for repentance, but it's another word that means repentance in the New Testament, to change one's mind or course of action. You get in on, on this provision by Jesus so that we can follow his example, and, and you, you get in on it by going to Jesus. Maybe uh, some of you have, have wandered far from him. Uh, you, you are at church today, but, but you know in your heart, your heart is far away from him. Uh, you, you might have wandered not just for weeks, you might have wandered for years. Uh, this, this is the way, it, this, is the way this, is, this verse is, is set up. It says, you are straying like sheep. It's, it's almost like verse 25 is especially written for, for somebody who is part of the Christian faith but has been slowly drifting away over the years, incrementally, like the, the frog in the kettle. If things were slowly getting weaker, your prayer life, your time in the word, uh, your, your earnestness for God, uh, your t just the whole orientation around scripture, it, it, it's been a gradual, slow decline uh, where after a while, you're not even sure if you believe it anymore. This, this is a wonderful call in verse 25 to come back to your shepherd. I just want to say that to you. If you're in that situation where you've been wandering, I want to call you to come back to your shepherd. Don't, don't delay coming back to Jesus because he won't reject you. If he was willing to die for you, he's not going to reject you when you come to him. He's not going to try to shame you if he took away your shame. He who died for you waits for your return. And so I, I appeal to you, whatever's going on in your life, to, to come to him. Let him take your guilt. Let him take your shame away. And so this is how, this is how Peter starts. He starts talking about how Jesus, how Jesus encountered disrespect and and. Uh, difficult treatment from others and how he dealt with it and then he help, how he helps us deal with it. That is right before this passage we're gonna primarily think about today, which is in 1 Peter chapter three. So we move from the gospel template for handling disrespect to number two, the marriage teaching for handling disrespect. It's very important for you to understand that what we just talked about uh, is sequentially is right there before what we're about to talk about. You gotta remember that uh, chapter uh, sections and one, chapter one, two, three, uh, the verse dis, uh, divisions are not in the original text of the Bible. These were something that was inserted. So what we're about to talk about is, is intimately connected to what we just talked about. Notice what it says in chapter three, verse one. Likewise, wives, or if you have the NIV in the same way. Then, then look over to chapter three, verse seven. It says, likewise, husbands. Uh, it's now gonna talk to husbands and wives, and it's, it's, it's the, even the, the grammar of the, the text itself is pointing back to the whole teaching about unjust suffering that goes on in has gone on rather in the life of Christ and how, he did, how he's dealt with it. In this messy world of conflicting values, notice what it says to the wife. The wife is called to be subject 
to her own husband. That's in verse one. To be respectful in verse two. Uh, to adorn herself by submitting to her own husband, verse five. And to be like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, verse six. And verse three to four makes it clear that this is how a wife looks beautiful to God. You wanna make yourself look beautiful? This is how you make yourself look beautiful according to scripture. Now, we all know that this is so counter to our culture. I mean, this is, this is counter-cultural teaching, friends, okay? And already there's some of you that are struggling with it. Um, that's okay. It's okay to struggle with scripture. But I hope you'll see that the biblical pattern is actually beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful pattern. It's not a power move, it's a beautiful pattern. I think there's two clues in this passage that help us understand how this is even remotely possible for the wife. The first is in reference to Sarah in verse six. Notice what it says. It says, Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It tells us clearly that Sarah, Sarah obeyed Abraham. It uses the word obey. It's a strong word. It's even a stronger word than, than be subject to and be submissive to, okay? Uh, and, and she does that because she calls him Lord, okay? Now, she's not, it's, it's, that's a term of respect. Oftentimes, that's the word, by the way, that, that often refers to God, okay? But it's not in this case. There's times where that's just a word of high respect, so she, she uses a highly respectful term to refer to her husband. Now here's the question, do you, know when, do you know when she does that? Do you know when Sarah called her husband Lord in the Old Testament? It's a very interesting text. It's when God brings news to Abraham that, that she, as an old woman, way past childbearing years, she's gonna give birth to a son. Uh, and she is utterly amazed by this news. And look what the scriptures say. Listen carefully to the, the scripture text now. So she gets this news and it says, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Uh, do you see the significance of that verse. She's not talking to anyone else. This is an unguarded moment by herself. It's quite possible that she was even thinking this just to herself. She calls Abraham, her husband, by this respectful title, my Lord, in an, in an unguarded moment in her own kind of, in her own conversation with herself. Uh, you might have expected her to say something like this when no one could hear. Oh, after I am worn out and that old geezer who has one foot in the grave, uh, shall I have the pleasure of children? You might expect her to say something like that under her breath. But she doesn't. She calls him Lord under her breath. Uh, you see, it's one thing to honor somebody outwardly. Uh, it's another thing entirely to honor them inwardly. And the way you think of someone inwardly reveals your heart. It, it, it requires a heart disposition to be respectful. Respect outwardly is always first inward. That's the first clue. That, that the, the example that's given here is of a woman and she was a strong woman. Just read the, the whole story of Abraham and Sarah, you'll find that out. She was no pushover. But in an unguarded moment, that's the way she thought about her husband. Interesting. And, and Peter lifts that out and uses his instruction in the New Testament. The second clue is found in verse four. It's talking about beauty. It's saying, 
It's not saying don't, you know, I knew a pastor when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, he used to say, um, if the barn needs painting, paint it. So he's not saying uh, don't, don't use makeup. He's not saying don't, don't, don't try to look pretty for your husband uh, or for other people. It's, that's not what it's saying. It's saying don't let that be the, don't let that be the emphasis of the kind of beauty you're trying to build. Don't just build outward beauty. Build inner beauty. That's the kind of beauty that really matters. Uh, The beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Let me read that to you again. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Wow. Um, my friends, this, this gentle and quiet spirit has nothing to do with personality. This is not saying you need to be, everybody needs to be an introvert. Uh, this has everything to do with a quiet heart before God. The, the word gentle here uh, carries the meaning of not being pushy or self-assertive. It, it means you don't demand your own way. And, and the word quiet is just another way of talking about trust, a trust that flows from righteousness. Scripture says the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Uh, really, what, what, what's being said here is this, okay? The, the wife that offers this kind of respect, the kind of respect that's talked about in 1 Peter 3, the, the, the wife that offers that kind of respect to her husband is a wife that has a certain kind of quality of a relationship with God. It, it's, it's, a, it's a certain kind of life with God that she enjoys that leads to that. It's her relationship with God that is the key to her relationship with her husband. Then in verse seven, we get to the husband, the call of the husband. And of course, he is also called to be respectful. Don't miss that. In fact, you're gonna be astounded at what it says. Um, and he is also being called to, to be respectful to a wife that isn't necessarily respectful back to him. Notice what it says, and by the way, I've confessed this many times over the years. Um, Many times over the years, I've been praying about something and uh, asking God to do something and he's not answering, not answering. And I say to God, why, why are you not answering my prayer? I know, my, I know I'm praying your will. I know, you, I know this is the right thing to pray. Why are you not hearing me, Lord? And I can't tell you how many times, hundreds of times over the years, uh, God has brought this verse to my mind. Listen to what it says. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, Many, many times I've had to repent of the way that I've handled my own wife before God will forgive me, and finally answer my prayers. Because God says, I'm not even listening until you get it right with your wife. That's what that verse says. And this word honor, by the way, is a special. Of all the words, kind of the respectful language that's used in chapter three, uh, a lot of respectful language that's directed toward the wife, the respectful language that's directed toward the husband is particularly profound. Uh, This word honor is a word that's applied to God himself. And it's also a word that's applied to the death of Christ and its value. So for example, did you know that 1 Corinthians 6.20 where it says, you were bought with a price. The word price there is exactly the same original word. The the, the value of that that price that that Christ gave to, to purchase you. It's the same word that's used here in 1 Peter 3, 7. Or, same word here in 1 Timothy 1, 17. 
Uh, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor. Same word. And glory forever and ever, amen. In other words, the, the husband is called to make his wife feel like she is precious to him beyond words. Anything less than this results in God refusing to listen to his prayers. So don't miss this, okay? Both the husband and the wife are called to give respect to each other, particularly in an environment where they're not getting respect from each other. The wife is called to give respect in a way that demonstrates that she's following her husband. The husband is called to give respect in a way that shows his deep appreciation for his wife. Both responses are, are closely tied to their relationship with God. With the wife, the quality of the relationship with God is, is shown to be the cause of the respectful behavior. And with the husband, the quality of the relationship with God is shown to be the result of the respectful behavior. So counter to everything that our world tells us, my friends, and counter to where your own sinful heart, my sinful heart takes us, God makes it very clear through the example of Christ and the teaching about husbands and wives in unideal situations that God wants us to respond to disrespect with respect. It's, it's really just another way of opening up and, and applying the teaching of scripture about that we are to bless those who curse or, or we are to love our enemies. This is not new teaching. This is just teaching that we already received from Jesus and from the apostle Paul applied to marriage. It's really just being like Jesus. So what we're gonna do for the remainder of the, the message is I'd like to finish our time together by, by moving into some careful application of what this actually looks like. Now, I find in the, that I've, when I talk to people about this, um, people always want me to tell them exactly what it looks like. But that's impossible. And it's impossible because of many factors. First of all, some of you uh, are, sometimes there's two extroverts that are married to each other. That's not common, but it happens. Or two introverts that are married to each other. Or an extrovert wife with an introvert husband or an extrovert husband with an introvert wife. You see, all of those scenarios, the way that it's gonna play out is gonna look different. Then you've all come from different families, different family backgrounds. Some of you came from really broken families. Some of you just came from semi-distorted families. All of us has come from sinful families. I don't care how good your family was, they were, they were filled with sinners. So you had distortions fed into you. Then, then you've had various experiences in your homes. And, and you've had various experiences with people around you. And then if you're married, you've had various experiences in your own, in your own marriage. There's strengths and weaknesses that you're having to deal with. It's, it's virtually impossible to, to say, this is what respect looks like in marriage. Here's the picture. But you know, it's kind of like male and female. Have you ever tried to define male and female? It's really hard. Trust me, try, try to define what it means to be male or female sometime. You can if you work at it, but it's hard. And yet everybody instinctively knows what it is. Everybody instinctively knows what it is. And you know when you're, you're, you're dealing with a masculine woman or a feminine man. You know, you know that there's something that's, that's switched over here, okay? Uh, we know what that is instinctively, even though we have a hard time putting it in place. Let me tell you, we know, everybody knows instinctively whether there's respect going on in the marriage, even though it's hard sometimes to define exactly what it looks like. So I believe the best way forward, and I wanna present this to you, I wish that I had been doing this from the time I was 20, but I've only really discovered this, this pattern 
of working out application in the last few years. And that is trying to uh, give a wisdom paradigm for nuanced application. So do we have that first uh, slide up? I want you to see this. This, this, by the way, this pattern that you're looking at right above, above me here, that is a pattern that's true for virtually all of life. But now we're gonna apply it to, to, to marriage. That God's way is a narrow pathway, okay? And on each side of his narrow pathway, there's ditches. There's a ditch on the right and there's a ditch on the left. Uh, the ditch on the left is where you subtract from scripture. There's things that you come across in the Bible that you don't like particularly for whatever reason. You know, you're reacting to it or, or you're, you've been swallowed up by worldly thinking or whatever it is. Uh, but you just don't like what the Bible teaches in certain areas. So what you do is you just delete it, delete it and choose to ignore that. But the Bible tells you that that's a very serious thing to do, by the way. When you decide to delete things from the Bible and subtract things, uh, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. It's a serious thing to delete. And even though that's talking about the book of Revelation specifically, the placement of the book of Revelation in the canon of scripture, and the fact that that's right at the end of the Bible, I think shows that this this has to do with the whole canon. You better be careful that you don't delete things from the Bible that are there. That's a serious thing to do. On the other hand, the other ditch is to add things to the Bible. I mean, if you've been in church for a long time, you know how, how easy it is to do that. Okay, add all kinds of things. Scripture says that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. Okay, so let me just say a couple of true, a few truisms to you and then we'll move through this quickly. Virtually everyone is inclined and lives in the ditch to the right or to the left. There's not a lot of people you're gonna find, unfortunately, I can tell you as a pastor, there's not a lot of people that, that run down the, the, what the Bible teaches. People tend to live in ditches. And not only that, most people live in ditches that are a reaction to the opposite extreme. Maybe they were raised in the right ditch and they go over to the left ditch or they're raised in the left ditch and they go over to the right ditch. They don't say, let's get on the road to get away from the left ditch. They say, let's get away from the left ditch by going into the right ditch. That's the common way to handle ditches. And the third thing is, is it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the middle. It is not an easy thing to walk in the middle. So let's look at what this looks like for wives and for husbands. First of all, let's look at what it looks like for a wife. What does it mean to live in the ditch with regard to being a wife? Well, if you're a person that's subtracting from God's word, you certainly don't like the word submit or be subject to. And so you veer towards independent control. Your approach is, I don't like the Bible's teaching on submission, so I explain it away or choose to ignore it. And the motivation is pride. I just want to get my own way. I want to maintain control. And here's the interesting thing. By the way, both ditches have a common factor to it. And here's the common factor. That that you read the word submission through a worldly lens. You don't let the Bible define what that means. You let the world define what that means. And then you let the world, you take the world's definition of it, which is broken, and you reject it. And you should reject it. You should reject the world's definition of submission, but what you do is you reject the whole concept because what you're rejecting is ultimately a $3 bill. It's not even something the Bible condones. Well, on the other side, we have wives that do the opposite. They add to something that's not in scripture. They also uh, look at the word submission through a worldly lens. They come up almost with the same definition as the other person, but they choose to accept it. They think that's what God's to. God's calling them to be a doormat. And so they hold to an unbiblical definition of submission that devalues them into a human doormat with little or no voice in the relationship. Of course, the, the motivation for that is fear to a 
to avoid conflict at all costs. I'm just going to keep this, this man happy because he's, he's a little dangerous at times. So you have ditch number, ditch over here, subtract submission or, or servile submission, you see? And, and both women typically define submission the same way. But they, one chooses to accept it and they think that's biblical. The other one rejects it. In a sense, the one that rejects it has got it a little bit more clearly, but unfortunately, they don't understand the biblical definition, which we're gonna get to in a second. Let's go to the, the slide of what this looks like for men, for husbands. Ditch number one of subtraction is cowardly passivism. I keep the peace at all costs by reneging on my, my call to leadership yet resent my wife's control. I, I never praise my wife publicly, but I do sulk a lot. The motivation again is fear, peace at any price. Men that are just spending all their time trying to keep things, keep, keep their wife happy. You know, don't wanna, don't, don't wanna just, just, just make her happy, make her happy. If mama ain't happy, nobody happy, so you just make her happy, you see? And it's a reneging, of, of the call that God has made. On the other hand, you have men who believe in aggressive domination. When they, when they think that they're, the way they're supposed to relate to their, to their wives, well, they're, they're supposed to be dominant. I hold to an unbiblical view of leadership that insists on getting my own way. And I use anger to manipulate and lead using guilt and fear. I, I am always right. And I never listen to any advice. Again, respect at any price. I'm gonna get respect, and you're gonna, you're gonna do what I wanna do. Well, these are two gross um, distortions of what God wants for husbands. You know, the dominant culture typically determines where most men end up on the spectrum. There are some places in, in our world today uh, where husbands tend to domination and only a few to passivity in certain places in the world, that's true. But in our present historical moment in the West, my experience has shown me that 90% of men tend towards passivity and about 10% towards domination. It's still a problem, but, but there's a lot more men in, in the passivity ditch than there is in the dominant ditch. They're both, of course, wrong, completely wrong. Now listen, listen carefully. If, I, I believe everyone here, if you haven't agreed with anything I've said so far, I believe all of you are gonna agree with this. No man on the planet feels good or manly if he is henpecked by his wife. But those same men are often reluctant to take spiritual leadership in their own homes. And I have never met a woman ever in my life who wants to be married to a weak man. Yet, they don't want to give up control either. So you see, both, both sides, they, they don't like how it is, but they don't really want to rise to, to embrace the, the pattern. I think there's a better way. And the better way is found in 1 Peter 3, honoring each other in marriage. Uh, the wife, seek the true beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Don't give way to fear. Uh, fear of losing control, fear of losing yourself, fear of losing your identity. Uh, submit to your husband because it's God's way. And like I said, this is a disposition. That's what Sarah teaches us. This is a disposition as well as an action. Husbands, and we didn't have time to really get into this. It says live with your wives in an understanding way. We didn't even talk about that. Regularly ask questions and, and listen in order to better understand your wife. God is calling husbands to try to understand their wives. They are a mystery I love my wife, I am very close to my wife, we talk a lot, we finish each other's sentences, and she is a mystery to me. 
And I don't think I'm ever gonna figure her out completely. Women are a mystery and that's one of the things we love about them. They're beautiful, they're mysterious, but God has called us to try to understand our wives as much as possible. Observe your wife to know her needs, her strengths, her weaknesses, her desires. And then as we've talked about today, behave and speak in a way that she knows she is highly valued and respected, cherished, adored, loved. And my friends, this, this is not just theory. Uh, it, this is God's owner's manual for marriage, and therefore it has to be visible and felt by our spouse, or it doesn't have any meaning. If it's not experienced and felt, it's not happening. So let me finish with giving you a feeble attempt at two definitions. This is my own definition, okay? Two definitions for husband and wife roles, and then two questions each for you to think about. Here's my feeble attempt at a definition of the role of husbands. A daily sense of responsibility that leads to concrete initiative to do good for the marriage that displays how highly you value your wife. Responsibility, initiative, valuing your wife. I feel like that captures it. And so husbands, here are two questions for you to kind of test whether you're functioning as, as, as a spiritual leader in your home or just a leader, period. Loving your wife the way God calls you to love your wife. Do you take initiative to resolve conflicts in the home? When there are conflicts, do you take the initiative? Christ took the initiative to resolve the conflict he had with us. And husbands are supposed to be representing Christ in the relationship with the church. Husbands should be the ones that man up and take the initiative to resolve conflicts rather than just ignoring it. Number two question, do you have a sense of responsibility for the spiritual condition of your family? Remember, the word responsibility is broken into two words, response, ability, ability to respond. Here's my feeble attempt at a definition of the role of wives. A daily disposition to support and follow your husband with a commitment to augment and strengthen the marriage that reflects a quiet trust in God and his plan. And here, again, it's a disposition. This is what I've said over the years. Joanne and I have said this so many times as we've met with couples. It isn't so much, it doesn't look like this or this or this. I'll tell you what it is, it's a disposition. If it's a disposition to support and follow your husband, I think you're gonna be okay. So here are a couple of questions for the wives. Wives, do you look to your husband for guidance and direction? Or do you, are you more inclined to rely on your female friends for that? That'll tell you an awful lot about your relationship right there. Who's, who's the one that gives you direction about how to raise your kids and, and the decisions you're gonna be making? Is, is it your women friends? The little, the little huddle there? Is that, is that where you get your direction? Or have you ever talked to your husband about these things? Do you long for your husband to provide spiritual leadership in your marriage, but at the same time insist on controlling most of the decisions in the home? Do you recognize any any inconsistency in that approach. Let me, let me end with a quote by Karen Job. The Christian's willingness to suffer unjustly out of reverence for God in order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ is a radical break with social expectations of that day, just as it is in our day. When read within its original historical setting, these verses become a call to social transformation within the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternate society, what John Stock called the Christian counterculture. 
allowing it to become an alternate society based on God's redemptive plan. Let's pray. Father, you you have created all of us in the image of God. You've given us, therefore, inherent dignity. And, And therefore, we are to treat everyone with dignity. In verse 17 of 1 Peter 2, it says, honor everyone, honor everyone. You call us to treat everyone with dignity. And we inherently long to be treated with dignity. Both men and women want to know that they are respected and treated with dignity. And we live in a culture of disrespect, not just in marriages, everywhere. Uh, Disrespect is rife. Politeness is rare. Courtesy is gone by the wind. The sense of duty is, is hard to find. Lord, we, we, we live in this, this world that everything that we've talked about today, the world around us is going in the opposite direction. And it requires unusual grace to be able to step into your world and, and follow your way. It, it's like learning another language but I pray you'd teach it to us. Because one day, the world might judge us today, but at the great throne of judgment, the world's not gonna have any say at all. It's gonna be you alone. We're gonna stand. Each of us must give an account one day before you. And these vastly important areas, Lord, we're gonna, we're gonna answer to you for them. All our arguments for or against the way we've done things is gonna, are gonna crumble when we stand before you and he'll say, why did you not follow what I said? And Lord, I also know that it just, it just when, we, when we disregard the instruction manual that you've given us, it just leads to unhappiness. As a pastor, I've seen that so many times over the years, disregarding God's instruction manual causes it to fail. So Lord, uh, we, I long for this. I know Josh longs for this. We long for this, is it our, that our church, the marriage was, would be built on biblical truth and not on the flimsy, ever-changing mantras of our society. So give us the grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.